once again. I greet you in the name of Jesus. Uh, only trouble is, whenever I come here, it's always cold March or cold April. But anyway, I'm still alive. Nice to be here with you. And at least you turned the sunshine on me for a little bit. Praise God. So then I want us to think about the gospel. I deliberately chose a rather vague title in order to give myself a bit of freedom. But um, I want us to think a little bit about uh, the message of the gospel and recovering the gospel in modern Britain and so on. For the moment, what I would like you to do is turn in your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 18. I want to base what I have to say tonight on this story in 1 Kings chapter 18. The story of Elijah uh, confronting the prophets of Baal. It was a time of great apostasy. Uh, You know what the word apostasy means? An abandonment of any kind of faith in the God of the Bible. It was a time of great apostasy in modern, in in, uh, northern Israel. Uh, Elisha and Elijah were the prophets of of northern Israel, not Judah, in the south. And there was a very wicked king called Ahab, and he had made a kind of pagan religion to be the national religion of uh, northern Israel. There were prophets of these gods called, called Baal, which is a uh, Hebrew word meaning Lord or God. There were, there were prophets of these Baalim or Baals all over northern Israel. And uh, there's only one person standing publicly against it. And that was Elijah. He was the only public figure. There were others around, but they were a kind of underground movement. There was really only one person publicly standing against what was happening. Well, let me first of all read the story. And I want to pick it up in 1 Kings chapter 18 verse 31 is uh, picking up from the middle of the story. He calls for a kind of contest and he says to these Baal prophets, Well, let's pray to God, and you can pray to your gods, he says, and the God who answers by fire, let him be God. Let's have a kind of a prayer test. You can pray and I'll pray and we'll see which God answers. We have a kind of prayer battle and uh, we'll see which God answers, says. Uh, Elijah, and so on. But let me pick up the story at verse 31. Elijah took 12 stones, according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel should be your name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he made a trench around the altar, as great as would contain two seer, uh, that's a a measure of uh, grain, two sears of seed. And he put the wood in order, and cut the bull in pieces, and laid it on the wood. And he said, fill four jars with water, and pour it on the burnt offering, and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time, and they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time, and they did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar, and filled the trench also with water. And at the time of the offering of the oblation, that's the uh, time when the sacrifice was made in the tabernacle in Jerusalem, at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, and that I am your servant, and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell, 
and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, Yahweh, it's the Hebrew word Yahweh or Jehovah, Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, the Lord, he is God. And uh, Ahab was able to turn around the religious system in northern Israel in his day. So I'm interested in this passage tonight. As I say, it was uh, taking place at a time of terrible, terrible apostasy. And uh, that's what specially interests me because I think that's where we are in modern Britain. I don't know whether you uh, are as... uh, negative as I am at this point, but uh, I want to tell you, I think that Britain is the worst at its worst spiritually than it has been for centuries. I think you have to go back to about 1720 to find Britain in the spiritual mess that it's in today. Around about 1720, Britain was at an all-time low. I'm talking about spiritual things, not necessarily politically or economically, but spiritually, uh, around about the year 1700 on to about 1730, around about the 1720s, Britain was at an all-time low. The politicians were, I, I, I don't even know how to describe them. I, I would be saying things I wouldn't even want to say in public. They were filthy, they were degraded, they were vile in every sense of the term. I wouldn't even want to describe them. And uh, it was said that the, the Christian gospel was finished. The average uh, view of uh, people in the 1720s was, well, we now know that the Christian gospel is fiction. It's, it's all, it's all, it was all a load of nonsense, and uh, quite soon now it's going to be dead and buried. That, that was the common viewpoint in the, in the, the 1720s. People tried to do things about it. There was a, an Anglican bishop, Bishop Butler, who would write these big, fat uh, books trying to defend the faith, the analogy of religion and this kind of thing, which you might know if you know anything about uh, religious history, but uh, they did no good whatsoever. These gigantic uh, tomes trying to defend the faith, nobody ever read them anyway, so uh, their their impact upon the nation was zero. They they did no good at all. And uh, it stayed that way for a few years. But then, I'm not here to give you a survey of history, but then the, the turning point came in the 1730s. In the 1730s, all over the place, things began to happen. In Northampton, in America, a man by the name of Jonathan Edwards was powerfully blessed by the Spirit, and revival began in America in 1734. A 22-year-old boy who grew up in a pub in Gloucester was baptized with the Spirit in 1735. His name was George Whitfield. He was a poor guy. He went to Oxford as a servitor which in those days meant you had no money, you just worked for other, other students as a kind of a house, house servant, and they, they kept you going financially. It was a kind of special thing for people who were terribly poor but had the ability to get to Oxford or Cambridge. And so he went up, up to Oxford as a servitor, as a poor guy coming from a pub in Gloucester. But and he began to seek God, and he, he got almost ill seeking God. Finally, he, he was sent back home. Uh, and for nine months, he couldn't continue his studies. He was so, he was so sick. But in 1735, he was, uh, I would say, he was baptized with the Spirit. God poured the Spirit upon him. And immediately, he had such a power in preaching. Uh, the Bishop of Gloucester wanted to ordain him 
and uh, he was technically, he, it was illegal. He was underage to be uh, ordained as an Anglican minister, but, uh, but the bishop ignored the regulation and ordained him anyway. And uh, amazing things happened. People complained. Ten pe- someone came to the bishop and said, ten people went insane when he preached his first sermon. The bishop replied, long may the insanity last. <laughs> And it, it began to entirely change. A few years later, 1738, Whitfield, uh, uh, Wesley, was, uh, had the same experience. A man by the name of Daniel Rowlands in Wales, Hal Harris in a little Welsh village called Trevecca in South Wales. And none of those men knew each other, or scarcely, Wesley and Whitfield did. But most of them did not even know each other. They'd never heard of Whitfield, uh, uh, Edwards, or Daniel Rowlands. They didn't even know about these men. But slowly they began to meet each other. And the uh, first time George Whitfield ever met Daniel Rowlands, the first thing he ever said to him was, do you know that your sins are forgiven? Daniel Rowlands said, yes, I've got an assurance that my sins are forgiven. I've had that assurance for several years. And they began to, to know each other. And uh, God began to powerfully move in, in Britain, in, in, first of all in England and Wales, later in Scotland, and it transformed the whole of Britain. Within, within a few years, Britain was an entire different country. At the point where they were ready to, as it were, bury the Christian gospel as dead and buried and ready to be finished now, and we won't even know who Jesus is in a few years. That, that's what uh, the French atheist Voltaire said. We said, in a few years, nobody will even know the name of Jesus. Uh, a little bit later, he said that. But uh, when they were ready to get the Christian gospel dead and buried, suddenly God moved. And within a few years, the whole of Britain was changed, and we became known. Britain became known as a Christian country, the most Christian country in the world, and began to reach other countries, and, and it led to all sorts of things. And the whole of the 18th century was a century of revivals. Uh, again and again and again, there would be these outpourings of the Spirit, and it went on for many, many years, and it transformed the face of Britain, and nearly all of our modern, everything that's good about modern Britain comes from those days. Prison reform started, the emancipation of women started, movements towards democracy started, the, the, the reform bill of 1830, it went, it went back to the Methodists. You see it in the trade union movement. Wesley organized his, his uh, people into little classes, he called them, and he, po- he appointed over, over them stewards. And those people went out into the business, they started trade unions, and they called their, their managers shop stewards. That very word comes straight out of Methodism. It, it, they, they learned it first in church. What they learned in church, they then applied in business. And the trade union movement, all these things, they came, everything good in, in modern British life came out of the powerful movements of the Spirit in, in those days. But the point I'm making is that in, in our situation today, we are very similar to what was happening in the 1720s. Not the 1730s and 40s and 50s, but the years before there was that outpouring of the Spirit. We are in days of great apostasy. I would think we know our Bible very, very little. I think the Bible is used so minimally. It's, it's almost like the medieval times where the Bible was locked up in Latin. It was there somewhere, but nobody ever really mastered it. People have lost the Bible. I could, I could uh, defend that proposition, I think, can give you certain reasons for it. But um, we, we too are in days of great decline. And that's why I'm interested in Elijah and Elisha. Here are these men, men 
working and ministering in a land where the whole land has apostatized. The entire religious setup in ancient Israel has, has gone to nothing. And uh, Elijah can say to, to King Ahab, I'm, I'm the only one. He's just one of just me. But there's 450 prophets of, of Baal. He can complain to King Ahab along, along those lines. But uh, here is this great man, Elijah. And I am interested in the story because I'm reckoning that you and I are called to be Elijahs in the day in which we live. We sometimes might feel, well, I'm the only one left, uh, sometimes, or we're the only people left really preaching God. We, we may feel like that sometimes. But uh, we are in uh, the situation of Elijah. There is great apostasy. We are in as big a decline as we've known for, for many, many centuries. You may say, why, why is that? Where, where did this decline come from? Well, I think the problem is not in the 18th century, but in the 19th century. In the next century, people began to uh, turn away from God. What happened was this. The, the impact of the 18th century went on for many, many years. And in the 1810s and 1820s and 1830s, there was a great blessing. Just, just continuing what had happened in the 18th century in America, especially, they knew amazing outpourings of the Spirit. 1840, 1850, things were going on. And at that time, the churches were very confident. And uh, I was thinking about it early this morning. I was in Victoria early this morning, and I, I just remembered something as I walked around uh, Westminster with Westminster Chapel just down the road and Westminster Central Hall. Have you ever seen Westminster Central Hall lately? This great big, uh, I was going to say monstrosity, this, this great big gigan gigantic uh, oblong sort of building and, uh, and in all of the great towns of, of Britain, Manchester and London, everywhere, these central halls were built and they, they, they would hold huge numbers. That, that building would hold, would hold about 3,000. Westminster Chapel, built in the 1850s, it will hold 3,000. All of these buildings were built in the 1850s. And what happened was this, they, they were expecting the kind of uh, prosperity of the Christian church to, to carry on going. It had been growing and growing ever since the days of Wesley and Whitfield, and they sort of expected that would continue. And they built these, these huge buildings, ready for the gigantic numbers that were about to flow into the churches. But actually, it never happened. And those buildings have never in their history ever been anywhere near filled on, by the regular preaching of the minister on Sundays. Westminster Chapel has never used its third gallery ever in its history by the ordinary preaching. It has on certain special occasions. When Billy Graham goes there for a day, they fill it up. But that's about it. The, the, ordinary, the ordinary services, they've never, filled, they've never even used the top gallery. Campbell, Morgan, Lloyd-Jones, even these great preachers, they've never touched the third gallery. Westminster Central Hall, the, the Free Trade Hall in Manchester, all these gigantic halls, they've never ever been needed or used. Although people built these gigantic buildings. You see, what happened was, it was about the 1850s when destructive attacks on the Bible came inside the churches. People had always been attacking the Bible, but it was always outside the churches. What happened around about the 1850s was, was this kind of destructive approach to the Bible came inside the churches. And uh, people known as pastors began to attack Scripture, and you can, you can read all about it in the history books. 
Archbishop Colenso in Natal and so on. These guys who were meant to be bishops and clergy and, and tra- trainers of the preachers, they, be- they began to criticize the Bible. They were following the latest philosophical fads in Germany, uh, but they began to attack the Bible. And I have to tell you, if you start attacking the Bible, you will kill the life of the Holy Spirit. You start attacking the Bible, your church will steadily go down. I've watched it. I was here in Britain. I was a young theological student in Britain in the 1960s. And I can think of certain uh, theological colleges which adopted all the kind of fashions of the 1960s. I I don't know whether whether you even know or whether you're old enough to remember or whether you would know about it. 1963, the Bishop of Wallage wrote, Honest to God, as it was called. Everybody uh, raved about this lo- local, local book and uh, all, the college, all the theological college of Britain took it up. But you know, those churches, th- those colleges that took those sort of uh, lines attacking scripture, they don't exist today. I, I could quote certain colleges, I knew all about Warminster, Murfield, you've never even heard of them. They, they ceased to exist. They committed suicide. When you start attacking the Bible and turning to Germanic philosophy instead of the gospel, who's, who's going to give his life to such a God? You can't even pray to it. It's not even a he, it's an it. I remember being at a certain minister's fraternal in the 1960s as a, as a young student, and some guy said to me, are you people, you believe in the Bible? You have your, your, your devotions in the morning. I said, yeah. He said, well, I have my devotions too. And I said, oh, yeah, what's that? He said, I read the Times and I have a kind of feeling of God. I said to him, well, either you're a Christian and I'm not, or I'm a Christian and you're not, because I don't worship your God and you don't worship my God. So if I'm a Christian, you're not. And if you're a Christian, I'm not. We we are worshipping different gods. (laughs) But uh, he was not impressed. But uh, those, those sort of... Guys, they committed suicide. Those colleges emptied and died. Today they don't exist. You start attacking the Bible, you're committing spiritual suicide. And that's what happened to the churches. They tolerated this kind of critique and attack and modern knowledge, as they used to say. All their theories are disproved. Nobody believes today the kind of stuff that was taught in the the 1850s and, and the following years. Attacks on the Bible go in fashions. They last for 10 years, there's a different one. It's all disproved and you find a different one and another one. And, and if you're a, a student of these things, you, you, you go through these experiences. I remember uh, there was a stage when uh, people attacked the book of Daniel because of, because of its reference to Belshazzar. You know, you know, in Daniel 5, you get Belshazzar and the hand appears on the wall, Mene, Mene, Tekulu, Fasin, and your, your, days, your days are numbered, your kingdom's found wanting. You know, you know that story, I hope. And uh, people said, well, how can there be a king, Belshazzar? It's just a fiction, it's just a myth. We, we know every single king of, of Babylon, and there's no, there's no king, Belshazzar. There isn't even room for one. We know every one that there is. There's not even room for another king. This is myth, this is, this is fiction. And they would attack Daniel because of its fictional Belshazzar. And then one day someone digs up some clay tablet in Iraq or somewhere. It's a bit difficult at the moment, but uh, you, dig, you dig up some clay tablet in the ancient Near East and you find out that there was a king who had a son called Belshazzar. And he was so busy pursuing his pagan Babylonian religion, he gave his kingdom to his son to look after. Everybody called him the king. There was a Belshazzar after all. This is typical of of, uh, Old Testament studies or New Testament studies. You attack something and you you slander it. Twenty years later, the whole thing collapses. You you move on to a new theory. And and new evidence comes up for this and this and this. But that's what happened. People began to attack the Bible. And the church has been steadily declining since that time. 
Around the 1850s, many, many people were churchgoers in Britain, something like 50%, I'm not sure of the exact statistic, but many, many people were churchgoers. And then it wasn't only that, it was also that uh, there was a kind of loss or a kind of change in the view that Christians had of the Holy Spirit. The Methodist awakening and the Evangelical awakening of the 1730s and so on, they were movements of the Holy Spirit. And they believed, power, they believed very much in the powerful workings of the Holy Spirit. They, they all had these experiences. They all had this amazing assurance of, of, of salvation. I've, I've told you Whitfield's first question to Daniel Rowlands. Do you know that your sins are forgiven? That's what they all had in common. They knew that their sins were forgiven. They had been baptized with the Spirit. They had an assurance and the power. And they all believed in these things. But for various reasons, as the churches were declining... You know, often when you are backsliding, you change your doctrine to fit your backsliding. You, you, you kind of adopt a new rationale for what's happening to you. And they, something like that happened in the churches. And they decided that we, we weren't meant to be seeking uh, experiences of the Spirit anyway. And a new phrase came into the Christian churches. It, it was the word, take it by faith. That, that was the new phrase. It came in around about the 1880s. Well, no, no we don't have the Holy Spirit, but we... But we We've taken it by faith, without any kind of experience of God, without any, any consciousness, without any power. So no, we've taken, we take it by faith that we have got the Spirit. And a, a kind of deadening view of the Holy Spirit came into the churches. And so the churches were steadily declining. And then the First World War broke out. And it, it brought a massive change in British religious life. Before 1914, many, many people were still churchgoers. But after 1918, a million or so were killed. But when people came back from battle and war and and the war years were all over, they did not go back to the churches. And uh, so much immorality and wickedness. War always shatters morality. It always disturbs the peace in a thousand ways. And uh, at the end of the war, the churches were, were emptying. And it got worse and worse and worse. And now... Now the statistic is that within about 10 years, the, the statisticians tell us, within about 10 years there'll be more Muslims in mosques than Christians in churches. And we are almost at the point of, of uh, the 1720s. Well, what do you feel about that? Am, am I depressing you? Do you wish you hadn't come tonight? But, uh, <coughs> that's where we are. Well, I want to tell you, it does not bother me in the least. Indeed, I'm sort of glad it's happening. I mean, all these churches around that are so dead, I don't, I don't mean to be offensive and I'm not a, attacking anybody, but you know, there's so many dead churches around. And when you have a dead body, the best thing you can do is bury it as quick as you can. If someone has died, you've really got only two things to do. You either raise him from the dead or you bury him. I mean, that's really what you do with, with a dead body. And really, that's what needs to be done. It's my view. You, you can uh, think about it. But uh, my view is most churches, we either have to revive them or we have to bury them. They're so spiritually dead um, that really we are in a bad state. And we are in the position, I think, of Elisha. But it, it doesn't bother me. You see... God is in control of history. We are not in control of history. And there are ups and downs in, in, the, in the course of history. And frankly, I would rather live in the 21st century than in the 19th century. 
I'd rather have a few Christians who are on fire, burning for God, persecuted by everybody else, than the whole nation claiming to be Christian, but so hypocritical, so moralistic, so, so much pretense and hypocrisy. I mean, the Victorian era is famous for its hypocrisy. It's famous for, for, for its uh, moralism and its racism and so on. I'd far rather be a minority, a, a flame for God, that let them persecute much as they want to. At, at least, at least uh, persecution gets rid of, of people who are not sincere. Gets rid of people. Gets rid of people who are just being religious because it's useful for them. I'd, ra- I'd rather have me a minority who are alive than a majority who are nominal and and dead. I have this problem in Kenya. I live in Kenya. In Kenya, seventy percent claim to be Christian. Churches have got thousands. You go to a bank and you get into trouble, you want someone to help you, you just say, hallelujah, and someone somewhere will say, amen. Can you help me, brother? There's Christians everywhere. You can watch TV on ordinary national radio and you'll find somebody appealing to you to get saved. I mean, there are Christians everywhere. Which is sort of wonderful. It's nice to have churches with thousands in it. It's not difficult for us to get 10,000 at a meeting. It's not difficult. But um, sometimes it's a bit nominal. Sometimes it's really, you know, being a Christian is good for your business. Your apologies. I remember some guy coming to see me once, and uh, he came to see me in Nairobi Baptist Church when I was there many years ago. I was pastor of Nairobi Baptist Church, and we had a congregation of about 2,000. And one guy came to see me one day, and, uh, but I couldn't get, it to get him to tell, to tell me why he'd come. I kept on thinking, yeah, well, can I help you? And I, I, couldn't, I couldn't get him to tell me why he was coming. And he was flattering me. It's nice to hear all your great sermons. He was being so sort of flattering, but I couldn't get him to tell me what, what he'd come to see me about. Finally, I discovered he was a politician, and it was election time. And he was hoping I would put in a good word for him on Sunday morning. You see, if you have a congregation of 2,000, it's election next week. If you can win these Christians, well, you better, you better have a go at it. But it's, it's hypocritical. It's not sincere. Better to be in a minority where there's reality than to be in a, in a country where everybody's nominally Christian. And sometimes there's a lot of hypocrisy and insincerity and in it. So don't, we, we shouldn't always be wanting big numbers. It's nice to have big numbers, great fun, we enjoy it, but uh, don't worry too much about it. Better to have reality than to have numbers where maybe the reality is not so great. You ought to enjoy being in the 21st century more than being in Victorian days. I'm, not, I'm glad we don't live in these Victorian days. I'd like the gospel to be clear. I'd like to be people to know who is and who is not saved. Let, let those who are not saved, right, fine, let's get them out of the churches as fast as we can. Let's bury the churches that are not preaching the gospel quick as we can. Let there be a difference between what is and what is not the gospel. We might be, we might be outnumbered 450 to 1, as Elijah was. He can say to the king, well, I'm the only one. Actually, it wasn't quite right. There were 7,000 who hadn't bowed the, bowed, bowed the knee to Baal. But they were a kind of underground movement. Elijah didn't even know about them. But uh, that's the situation. Well, anyway, all, all that by way of introduction. But um, let's look at what happened. I want you to notice that Elijah is totally in control of the situation. The first thing you notice about this guy, as you read the story, is there's absolutely no timidity there. He's not saying, well, you know, uh, I hope you'll let me uh, listen to me as well as the prophets of Baal, and uh, I know they're the majority, but uh, let, listen to me as well. He's, he's not, as it were, begging for a position in the, in the religious panorama of the day. He's not in any kind of situation of timidity. He, he doesn't talk as though he's in a minority, though he is. 
that he, t- he's, he acts as though he's totally and completely in charge. Listen, listen, read the whole chapter. I haven't got time to read the whole chapter. He goes to the king. He says, no, 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 these prophets of Baal are, are wrong. I'm going to prove it to you. The God who answers by fire, let's assemble these Baalite prophets. He's, he's acting as though he's totally in control. And uh, this is the way we should, <coughs> we should be. We should not be intimidated by the situation that we are in. I think many of us tend to be intimidated. I don't think we should do. Elijah can say, I, even I, am the only one left. Verse 22, I'm a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. But then he says, ah, but let's do something about it. And immediately he's acting, he's going to deal with the situation. He is not, he is not uh, intimidated, he's not bothered. And I think that's where we are today. Okay, we're in a minority, Britain is very uh, apostate. Its morality is sliding by the hour. Uh, and uh, every time I come to Britain, which is about once, once or twice a year, each time I see something which I've never seen before, it's normally some kind of advert on the underground. I look at some advert which is entirely disgusting. And I'll say, well, I've never seen that before. Only six months later, I'll be back, and there'll be something even worse. And each, each time, if you go away for six months, six months intervals and keep on coming back, you see the change which you don't see if you're living here all the time. And each time you say, well, I've never seen that before. And it goes down and down and down. And things which uh, would scandalize people even five years ago, today are completely tolerated. And so on. But um, I don't think we should worry about that. And remember that God is in control of history and God does not repeat himself. And that's a very important point. God does not repeat himself. Don't say, oh, if only we had the, uh, the days of Wesley and Whitfield back. No, God's not just going to turn the clock back. That's not God's way. God's way is not to do something which has been done before, but to do something new. Don't, don't, don't pray for the 18th century or Victorian times. Don't even pray for the 1960s or 1950s, the Billy Graham crusades where everybody was uh, going to, to Wembley or Harringay. Don't even pray for those days. No, those days have gone. Don't even want them. Look to God to do something new and start uh, getting ready for the day in which we live. Elijah knows what to do. Here he is, outnumbered by hundreds the only one publicly standing for God. But he knows what to do. Well, we're going to pray. I'm, I'm going to prove to you that the God who answers by fire, let him be God. You, you, you better like people, you can demonstrate your God is God. Let, let your God do his best. I want to show you that the God and Father of, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob can do better than all than 450 of all you prophets. I'm going to show you. I'm going to demonstrate. Elijah instantly has plans for the, for the message of the God of the Bible to come back to the land of northern Israel. He's not in any way intimidated. He knows that pagan gods can do nothing. And you ought to know here in modern Britain that anything other than the gospel can do nothing. Let the educationists do their best. Let the politicians, whoever wins the election, will make much difference really. No no politician can give anybody a new heart. Here we are wanting to improve the country. But you can't improve the country unless you improve the people of the country. As I often say in Kenya, you can't have a new Kenya unless you have new Kenyans. You can't have a new nation unless you have new people. Uh, you, can't, you can't politicize or legislate for morality or, 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 or honesty in government. Many of the politicians are not, not, not honest themselves. You can't get the people to work if you yourself are not working. You can't get the people to be content with a, a, a low salary if every time you raise your salary, you do so twice as much as you do anybody else's salary. 
when there's insincerity in yourself, how are you ever going to change anybody? Politicians all over the place, side to side, in every country. I'm not talking about Britain, everywhere in the world. Can they give anybody a new heart? Can they forgive anybody's sins? Can they impart the new birth? Can they enable a person to stand before God? Can they get anybody's prayers answered? They can do, they can do nothing that really affects life as it really is. It's righteousness that exalts a nation. Nothing else does. Elijah knows these Baalite prophets can do nothing. When, when, when you call upon a, a real comparison, we, we live in a day of comparative religion. You know, the Christian gospel sort of been squeezed out a bit, and people say, well, you have to give a, a voice for every face. Let, let, let Hinduism speak. Let Islam speak. Uh, let the atheists have their voice. I love it. I love comparative religion. Let us do all the comparing that we can. Yeah, let's look at atheism. Let's look at Buddhism. Let's look at Islam. Let's look at Hinduism. Let's see what, see what life is really like when you do get into the and look of the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's ask the question, what will, be, will this be like if the gospel prevails? What will England be like, Britain be like, if Islam prevails? What will any country be like? What, what will China be like if, if, if Chinese Mao-type communism prevails? Ask the question. Let's compare. Comparative religions, I'm all for it. The more the better. Because our Christian gospel can stand comparison with anything. And read your history books. When, when did communism bless a nation? When, when did Hinduism really bless India? You go to a country like India, everything good about India comes from the Christian church. You come, you come to Africa, everything good about Africa comes from the Christian church. I, I know of Muslim people who try to take over museums and then collect as many artifacts as they, Christian artifacts they can and destroy them to try and pretend that the country has Islam, Islamic origins when in fact it has Christian origins. Because everything good about the country, the, the earliest hospitals are Christian, the earliest schools are Christian, the earliest everything is Christian. The best thing you want to do is you better, you better destroy the evidence if you wish to say anything else. We, we, we've nothing to be afraid of. We, we, we don't mind people, facts being looked at. Remember what Paul said to Agrippa? He said, Agrippa, find out as much as you can. These things were not done in a corner, said, said Paul to King Agrippa. You, you, you can investigate as much as you want to. You, you won't find any, out anything which does not support the Christian gospel. Investigate the resurrection. Investigate the impact of the gospel. Do all the investigating you can. These things were not done in the corner. Find out. We're not afraid of facts. The facts are not on the side of, of the devil, the facts are on the side of God. His righteousness that always does exalts a nation. What was Britain like when there, before the days of Wesley and Whitfield? What was, the, what, was the, what was Britain like after the days of spiritual revival? What led to the great success of military power and worldwide colonies and so on? Not, not that I'm very fond of colonies, but uh, what, what, what was it that led to that kind of greatness well, it wasn't the days of King Charles II and his merry men. It was, the, it was the days of the preaching of the gospel. Always. And it's true of every, every country there is. So Elijah is not intimidated. He's not afraid. He does what needs to be done. And so he's going to pray that the God who can answer by fire will move in his country. But, uh, and here's the thing that I want to emphasize tonight, before he prays for the God of Israel, northern Israel, to answer by fire, there are some preliminary matters. And I'm very interested tonight in these preliminary matters. He says, well, let's have a kind of prayer contest. You, you pray upon your gods, 
And I'll pray upon to, to the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, or that's New Testament language, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But before he does that, he does a few preliminaries. He says to the people, no, no, come, come, come here, come, come here. Now, I want you to repair the altar. You see, the, the altar in which the God of Abraham was worshipped is broken down. It, 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 these, these, this place is, is uh, nothing. It's been totally broken down. Nobody's worshipping Yahweh. Nobody's worshipping the God of the Bible. So it says they repaired the altar. And Elijah took 12 stones. And with these stones, he built 12 stones. It's very important to see the 12. 12 stones. He built an altar in the name of Yahweh. When you have a capital O, capital R, capital D, it's Yahweh. In the name of Yahweh. Then he makes a trench around the altar and he floods the whole place with water, drenches it three times over. And now what's going on here? Well, you see, before the fire can fall, there has to be something for the fire to fall on. Before God can, as it were, come down and, and in, in fire falling from heaven and consume the altar, and everybody say, well, the Lord, he is God, and the whole nation is, as it were, turned around. Before that can happen, there are certain things that have got to happen first. And it's these things that have got to happen first that I'm interested in, because that's where we are. The first thing he does is he builds the, uh, the altar. Or, or I could put it like this. He goes back to the, to the old, old message of the Mosaic law and the early parts of the Scriptures, which are all about atonement and sacrifice for sin. The altar says that God is a holy God that you can't just casually stroll into his presence. He's a holy God. He, he, he can't deal with sinners unless something, as it were, makes it possible for him to deal with sinners. He's the holy God. And there's, there's actually, uh, actually no way in which the average person, man and women, men and women as they are, can approach the God of the Bible. We are sinners and he's a holy God. How can we have anything to do with God? Ah, but there was a way. God ordained a way of salvation. And all over the Old Testament, long before Elijah ever came along, all over the Old Testament, back to the days of Abel and the, the early patriarchs and in the Mosaic law, they built these, these altars and they approached God by way of blood atonement. They would take an animal and in, in, the, in the tabernacle, <coughs> they would bring the, the animal to the front door of the tabernacle, the temple, and they, they would lean their hands on the head of the animal. It was a way of saying, I'm putting my sins on this animal. I, I'm a sinner. There's no way in which I can come to God. I, I'm putting my sins. This animal, he's got to somehow atone for my sins. And then he and the priest together, they would slaughter the animal. The animal, as it were, would be punished for sin. He had, it was just a symbolism. It was nothing real. The animal doesn't do anything really. But it was symbolism. It symbolized that... Uh, there's the way of salvation was by a sacrifice for sin. And the only way in which you could come to know God was for someone, and this was symbolical, in the symbolism, someone had to die for your sins. 
and you put your faith, and you came, you came to God in the name of a saviour, in the name of a sacrifice, and that's the only way you could know God. And the great high priest, when he did that, he, he would do that and cleanse himself, and then he could go right in to the Holy of Holies. He could deal with God, he could go and pray, pray for the people. He could have access to God. And symbolically, the people, when they did this every single day, they were coming to know God by putting their faith in a sacrifice for their sins. And Elisha says, well, it's no good you expecting God to come down if you're not believing in the message of, 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 of the Mosaic system and the message of Abel and the message of, of God's revelation to Israel. Go and build out the altar. Or I put it to you like this, putting it in, in a modern way. There's utterly no way in which you'd expect God to move in our country unless we go back to the gospel. Before you can expect fire to fall, you have to have something for the fire to fall on before there can be, as God, as it were, honouring uh, the churches or honouring uh, the people of God. There has, there has to be something for the fire to come down upon. And that which God, which God comes down upon is the gospel. Unless we go back to preaching the message of the gospel. And you know, there's not much preaching of the gospel, really. I, I, I put it to you in terms of two, two tests. I don't know whether... It will work in this country. I'm not quite sure, but you can tell me. But all over the world, I put it to you like this. What happens when you switch on TV and find some preacher preaching on TV? What is he preaching about? How often are they preaching about sin? Almost never. How often are they preaching about the only hope, which is the blood of Christ? Almost never. How often are they preaching faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Normally they're preaching about money, aren't they? And prosperity. At the bottom of the TV is flashing notes, send your check to this number, it's sort of flashing at the bottom of the screen. That's the normal uh, TV program throughout the world, isn't it? I don't think we see it so much in Britain. That's a, that's a mercy. But uh, in some countries, some countries it's terrible. Or put it another way, you just stroll into a church. You, you don't, you, you've never been to that church before. You just stroll into that church on the off chance and, uh, and uh, think, oh, what's going on? I think I'll go there tonight. When you just casually stroll into a church, what is the preacher likely to be preaching about? I don't know whether you ever do that. Do you ever think, well, I think I'll go to some other church tonight. You just, you just go into some church somewhere. When you do that, how often do you hear the gospel? The answer is hardly ever. You might thought, well, tonight, you know, tonight we're not having a sermon. Uh, you know, we're fundraising for our building. Tonight's a Thanksgiving evening. Or, or, or tonight we've we, we, we got, we got the children, they're performing tonight. It can be all sorts of things. It can be, often it's about tithing. It can be all sorts of things. But how often is it any kind of message that deals with the centralities of the gospel? Until we get to the point where our message concerns the centralities of the gospel, I don't think the fire will fall. Surely when someone casually comes to church, surely they must hear a message about central things. I'm not sort of dictating to you or trying to be legalistic, but they must hear about sin and Jesus and salvation and his death and his resurrection, his coming again, his intercession, his power, the power of godliness, the, the Bible. He must hear exposition. He must hear, he must hear central messages. Surely anybody who strolls into our church, if he, does not, he or she does not hear the gospel, how can you expect the fire to fall? To fall? 
And the very first thing that uh, Elijah says, well, he said, I'm not even going to pray that the fire will fall. Build up the altar first. There has to be a message about God, a message about man as fallen and sinful and totally unable to save himself. There has to be a message about new births. And when you look at these great days of revival, you'll always find that's what they preached about. Somebody came to Whitfield once. He said, Mr. Mr. Whitfield, you are always preaching. You must be born again. Why is it that you, you seem to have only one text? Why are you always preaching? You must be born again. He replied, because you must be born again. <laughs> These men preached, preached the new birth incessantly. And Luther preached justification incessantly. Read Luther's 55 volumes of works in the modern English, complete works, and they're not very complete. It's only a third of his works. Read, read Luther's works again and again, everything he's preaching on. He's, he's bringing out the central message of Scripture everywhere. And there's absolutely no difference between his preaching in the, in the church and his lecturing in the university. You read Luther lecturing in the university, he's preaching the gospel. You, you, you read Luther preaching in the parish church at Wittenberg, he, he's doing the same thing. There's absolutely no difference whatsoever between Luther's ordinary preaching on a Sunday morning and Luther's preaching to university students everywhere. And he would say, when I'm preach, I've got my eye on the servant girls. He would be looking at the poorest, 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 neediest people in the, serv- in, in the, in the service. If Philip... That's Philip Melanchthon. Or Jonas, that's some other professor at the university. If Philip or Jonas are offended, the door is open. He's not bothered about them. He's preaching the gospel to the people. He's not trying to display himself as a learned professor. And, and this, is, this is the great mark of revival. The great mark of revival is that they have a message. They preach about the atonement. They preach about justification. I've mentioned Jonathan Edwards. What he did was he discovered that nobody in Philip, in Northampton, was really believing in justification by faith. So he begins to preach a whole series of sermons on being justified only by faith in Jesus. As he's preaching that series, the Spirit is poured out. You have to have a gospel message if you want gospel power. You have to rebuild the altar. And I I would say that in, in the life of the church somewhere, I'm not laying down laws for you and you can work it out, your own way, but uh, I would say that somewhere in the life of a church, the gospel must be preached every week, week after week after week. The centralities of the gospel must be preached. I don't mean just the same sermon every Sunday. I don't just mean John 3.16 every week or or getting people to walk forward every week. I don't mean that. But the the centralities of the Christian faith must must be surely proclaimed week after week after week somewhere. You don't only teach Christians. If you only teach Christians... I'm especially speaking to preachers at the moment. If you only teach Christians, you produce a congregation of Pharisees. People say, well, no, no, we're good Christians. That's all you do. Sometimes when you preach the gospel, you discover that some of your Christians weren't Christians at all. I remember being once up in Nyahururu, which is a little, little town up on Mount Kenya, and I had to go up there to do some uh, church activity. And I had to, so I preached at the little church. There a tiny little church, about 20 people in it. And I happened to be preaching everywhere on John's gospel. And I'd got, I'd got to John chapter 3, you must be born again. That's where I'd got to, just preaching everywhere on John's gospel. And I thought, well, should I, should I preach on you must be born again to these people? And I thought, well, yeah, I think I will. And I just, I just carried on preaching my series that I've been preaching everywhere, you must be born again. And uh, the pastor was a bit annoyed with me. And at the end of the service, the pastor came to see me and he said, well, you know, I don't know why you preached on, on the new birth this morning. 
I said, oh, why is that? He said, well, you know, these are all, these are all Crisco people. Our church is called Crisco. Well, these are all Crisco people. They're all committed members. And, you know, they're all saved. I don't, I don't know if we should be preaching the gospel to these people. They're all saved. As he is talking to me, a, a lady walks up. I'm, I'm talking to the pastor, and the lady comes and interrupts us. She said, oh, pastor, oh, pastor, Eden, I'm so glad. I'm so glad you preached on being born again. I never really knew what it was to be born again. I think I got born again this morning. <laughs> Uh, here's this guy, about 20 people in the congregation, and he's been there for years, and he's assuring me, every one of these people is saved, he doesn't want to preach evangelistically to them. If someone comes and preaches, you must be born again. And there's a lady who says, I've never heard anything like that before. And she's saved that morning. You get some surprises when you preach evangelistically. People you thought were saved for years, suddenly, suddenly their whole lives have changed. And they come and see you say, you know, I've heard this gospel for years, but I never really saw it. This Sunday, somehow it touched me. And you get people being saved week by week. You get people saved. Sometimes you get surprises. People you always took it for granted, they were saved. And then they suddenly discover they're not saved after all. If you preach the gospel in detail, they suddenly say, well, I don't think that's happened to me. And they get annoyed with you. Their, their first reaction is to be annoyed. You know what you do? You say, I'm not, I'm not a Christian after all. And they get annoyed with you. But they keep listening. And one day they get saved. But, but there has to be some message there. And of course your children... You know, our children don't, don't take it for granted. Our children are saved. Our children need to hear the gospel. And they're not going to hear the gospel unless, unless, unless somehow it's, it's there Sunday by Sunday in some form or another. Our children are, uh, need, need to hear the evangelistic message. Don't expect your children to be Christians until God has touched them and saved them. Don't pressurize them. Don't go and bully them and say, say after me, I'm a sinner, and sort of coach them and say, now you're saved now. Don't, don't do that to them. Let them just hear the preaching of the gospel and respond in their own time and their own way. And down the years, I mean, one of the great, one of the great blessings I ever had as a preacher, the wonderful, wonderful thing happens to me occasionally, is to go somewhere where I've not been for 20 years. You know, maybe I go someplace, or I was pastor there 20 years ago or something, and then I go back one day to visit my old friends, and I see... All the children in leadership. I find, I find some guy preaching, and I know him. I knew him when he was about six years old. And you see all the children suddenly, or you see your old friend. You go, it's my old friend. And you say, you're going to greet your old friend. Something? no, he can't be my old friend. He's too young. My old friend must be about 60 now. And then you realize it's his son who looks like the guy you knew 20 years ago. And you're greeting somebody and thinking it's your friend. It's not, it's his son. Or you, you see some lady, you think, oh, oh, there's sister so-and-so. And they think, no, no, she's too young. It's her daughter. And they're saved, and they're in, they're in leadership, and they're, and they're involved in the things of God. Because years ago, you were preaching the gospel, and those children, you didn't even think they were listening. But they were. And they were just in their own time, their own way, they were getting saved. You don't have that explicit, you don't have that experience. And there's somewhere in the life of the church, you're regularly preaching Fairly evangelistic. I don't mean I don't mean pressurizing people for decisions, but I mean the central content of the gospel. Rebuild the altar. If you want the fire to fall, rebuild the altar. And this is surely our task. We here we are in Britain being sort of invaded by, by Muslims. It's a kind of a warfare, only it's a nice, quiet, respectable one. And uh, there's, no, there's no big fighting on it. But slowly, slowly the numbers are increasing and uh, and they, they want lots of children, and they have, they have four wives, and, and if you do a bit of arithmetic, if 100 people, 25% have four wives, where do the other 75% get their wives from? 
Good question. Oh, the answer is, it's policy. You go and marry someone of a different faith. You have to, because, because, because the percentage of your own faith have all been taken up. If a, if a quarter has four wives each, then 75% of the women are already busy. You have to go and find somebody else's women. And that's true, isn't it? It's just that's arithmetic, isn't it? I was flying by Emirates the other day, the Arab airline from... Uh, United Arab Emirates and the crowds on the plane and the woman was uh, trying to uh, help get the, the stewardess was trying to get people onto the plane in an orderly manner. So she was putting them on the plane by family. And so she was uh, putting two or three there and this couple with, with their children and, and three or four here. And then some guy comes on here and says, oh, string of tickets. And she says, no, 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 I'm, I'm, putting, I'm putting people along by families. He says, this is my family. She says to him, how many do you have in your family? He says, he says, 16. I've got three wives and 12 children, and it's me. <laughs> Man, that's one way of evangelism. But, uh, <laughs> don't worry about it too much. Because God is the God of history. He's the Lord of history. We've tried for years to get to Muslim countries, and we've never really succeeded. Now Muslim countries come to us. It's much cheaper on airfares. Now, now, now now they're all coming here. One day there will be a breakthrough. One day Islam will fall. We've seen communism fall. We've seen apartheid fall. A few hundred years ago we saw Catholicism be shattered by one, one little monk putting a notice on a notice board in Wittenberg. Islam will go the same way. God, God will get people to see the true nature of Islam. And hundreds and thousands will be saved if we are a gospel-preaching people. Everybody knows what our message is. If there's a, we may be a minority, we may be outnumbered 450 for one, but if the, if the one is like Elijah, one day those 450 will get saved. And those prophets of Baal will, will bow the knee and say, he is God, he is God, he is God. But you have to have a message. You have to rebuild the altar. You have to be loyal to the gospel. Otherwise the fire will not fall. And these preliminaries are important. Well, there's one, one more I, I'll have to carry on tomorrow, but uh, I want you to notice as well that Elijah does not want any kind of manipulation. Why is it that he pours water all over the place? Well, because when people are up to their uh, are calling for fire to fall and, and they're trying to do their religious routines, there is often so much trickery. So much uh, manipulation and deceit, and people can, can get phenomena to appear. And uh, religious leaders are so good at manipulating. People can manipulate all sorts of things. And the danger is that the people of God might do that. That the people of God try to sort of manipulate or trick or pressurize people or try to pretend that the gospel's different from what it is or change the gospel to make it nice for people. And we try to manipulate people into coming into the Christian church. That does no good whatsoever. The first thing we must do if we are to expect the fire to fall is to, is to have nothing where it seems as though we are getting the fire to fall. And Elijah wants it to be absolutely clear that when God answers by fire, it's not anything that Elijah is doing. It's not some trickery. He's not got some secret charcoal, charcoal burn around the corner to make the fire, to make the, the altar catch fire. He's not going to manipulate, do any kind of trickery. Now, there's so much trickery in, in modern churches. I, I could give you the history of that. Ever since, ever since the 1820s. That also came in the Victorian ages. We so, we so wanted decisions and we get people to do this and, and miracles and so on. I'm not against, I'm not against uh, God doing signs and wonders, but I want them to come from God and nowhere else. 
I remember some years ago when the Toronto Blessing was going on. You remember the Toronto Blessing when people were laughing and falling over and all those things? And I went in London to the Toronto Blessing meetings. And uh, some lady came up to me. She said, Pastor, can I pray for you? I said, yeah, yeah, fine, you can pray for me. And she said, hold your hands in the air. Close your eyes. And I began to pray. She she said, no, no, don't pray. She didn't want me to be praying. And then she said, no, I want to pray for you. Don't you pray, I want to pray. Then she started pushing she wanted me to fall over. She began to sort of push. And I didn't, I didn't want to fall over. I, I don't mind if God knocks me over. I didn't want this lady to be knocking me over. So I began to push back. And she was pushing me. And I was, she, she wanted me to sort of... She was trying to manipulate a kind of religious collapsing upon the ground. Saying, oh, God's here today. That is manipulation. I don't mind when God does it. God, sometimes God does do that. I've known God knock people unconscious for hours. I don't mind when God does it. But we must not do it. And under the, under the days of Wesley and Whitfield, all sorts of phenomena took place. And uh, Wesley, that respectable upper-class Englishman that he was, didn't like all this, all this sort of uh, extremism in his meetings. And he wanted to suppress it all. And I think it was Whitfield who said to Wesley, or maybe the other way around, I forget which is which now, but uh, one said to the other, just leave it alone. If you suppress the false, you will suppress the true. But don't try and suppress it. That's what you do in this phenomena. You neither encourage it, nor do you forbid it. You don't say, oh, this is wonderful. Let, let's, 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 let's have a falling over meeting. No, no, don't, don't, don't turn it into a kind of cult. On the other hand, nor do you say, you mustn't do a thing like that. Stop it. Take, you know, put him out of the fellowship. You neither condemn it, nor encourage it. You just carry on. You just carry on preaching. And you will find it fades. When, when God is, is moving in power, all sorts of phenomena can be there. But don't, as it were, institutionalize the phenomena and try and have meetings to, for falling over or meetings to lay on the carpet and drinking from the Spirit or, or all these kinds of things. Don't, don't turn it into an institution. Because then you'll produce a kind of inauthentic revival. You'll get on TV for a few weeks. There's, a revi- there's revival in St. Albans. It only lasts a couple of weeks. Now you don't want that. You want the real thing. And when this phenomenon is rush, let, let, let God do whatever he wants to do. But don't turn it into an institution. Don't even encourage it. Just, just let it go on and uh, avoid manipulation. Avoid it radically. Don't let there be the slightest shadow of a hint that you are, as it were, pretending that there's miracles or pretending that there's manifestations. Let it come from God and God only. If anything, you make it a little bit difficult. And then, then if something happens, this, it has to be God. Elijah pours water all over the place. If the fire falls, nobody's going to say, well, that was Elijah. He's up, up to his tricks again. No, no, no one can say that. When the fire falls, burns up the sacrifice, this just has to be God. Then he prays. I believe that's the, the message for the hour. I'm going to stop now and we'll carry on a little bit. But I believe that's the message of the hour. We should not be intimidated by the situation we find ourselves in. Better to be a pure minority than a corrupt majority. Better be people, people who are small in number and persecuted, but are authentic. And anybody who investigates us discovers that we're authentic rather than just traditional religion and old-fashioned European Christianity, which died a long time ago. No, no, God has to do a new thing. We're praying for God to do a new thing. We're praying for the fire to fall. Don't be intimidated by modern religions coming into Britain. It may turn out to be the best thing that's happened for centuries. 
It may be the new wave of what God is going to do when God sets people up. You remember how Habakkuk complained and said, uh, you know, the law is slack, there's so much wickedness in, in Israel. And he's moaning and complaining. God says, oh yeah, I know. I'm going to send the Babylonians. And that, that was not what Habakkuk wanted. Habakkuk wasn't, wasn't wanting Babylonians. Same place, of course. It's modern Iraq, same place. God, Habakkuk wasn't wanting Babylonians to invade the land. But they did. And those Babylonians caused Israel much suffering. But eventually, it purified Israel from idolatry. They got rid of idolatry forever after that Babylonian invasion. And they were scattered all over the world. And they didn't know why they were being scattered, but they were getting ready for the coming of Jesus. When Jesus came, there were Jews all all over the place, everywhere, reading the Old Testament. They translated into Greek just for them because they forgot their language. And so the Greek language, the Roman rose, the Babylonians scattering the Jews, the entire gospel, the entire continent of Europe was ready for the gospel when Jesus comes. Those things which were going wrong, these invasions in the history, the Babylonians and the Greeks and the Romans, all these things going wrong. They're not things going wrong, they're things going right. In a surprising way, they're God setting up history ready to move with his gospel. Jesus is the head over all things for his body, the church. Don't you worry about where history is going. It's on target, it's on course. I'll tell you where it's going. It's going to the day of the Lord. It's going to the day when Jesus comes. It's going to a day when all nations will hear the gospel. Before he comes, all nations will hear the gospel. It's going to a day when every knee will bow. It's going to a day when every tongue will confess. We don't, we don't know how it's going to get there, but we know where it's going. It's going to the day of the Lord. And all nations are going to hear the gospel. And I don't believe any nation that's once heard the gospel ever gets abandoned. God will come back. God will move again. And be ready for it. Lay foundations. Be ready for God to move. We live in a day when we build the altar, where we lay foundations, where we prepare for the day when the fire will fall. Be, 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 be loyal, be sincere, be consistent, be pure, be clean. Don't put your faith in any kind of false gospel or corrupt gospel or woolly gospel. The one and only gospel of the Bible. Put your faith in it. Live it. Preach it. And one day... The fire will fall. Let's stand and let's pray together. Our Father, we want to pray for our country at this time, even in these days of election campaigning when all the world has got its answers for the various problems. We know we're the only people that really do have the answer. The gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray, Lord, that you'll write these things upon our hearts, that we may, fear, we may be fearless, we may be free from any kind of intimidation, we may be bold and confident about the one and only gospel, we may <coughs> rebuild foundations, we may build up altars, we get rid of manipulation, we call upon you to give the fire until the day comes when you move, move in a great way, when, when a new epoch of your gospel comes into this land and every other land, and all nations here of the gospel message of Jesus. Give us this kind of faith in your moving as the king of history. We ask it, ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 God bless you.